questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Please pay attention to every word, as the information you're about to hear may shake your beliefs and foundations. The history of mankind is another totally different from what we are taught in schools and universities. Always promoting scarcity, always in conflict and chaos. You will never be told that there was a time when human civilization lived in peace and harmony with entire cities and structures built, which cannot be replicated even with today's technology. By using free energy, electromagnetism, sound, frequency and vibration, the materials used and the plasmatic cymatics that can be seen in its architecture. Can you imagine free energy, atmospheric ether domes that seem like ornaments using mercury, gold, and copper, but really were collection devices of the ether, the fifth element that surrounds us? Did you know that, oddly enough, all World Fair locations burnt down along with all major locations with this advanced architecture worldwide? They all had related structures that can harvest free energy resonating a higher frequency, star forts, antennas, water towers, glass prison sidewalks, etc., which all ended up in fires, earthquakes, and a mud flood reset. Because our time history is off, this could have been a global reset. The quote-unquote end of day, so to speak, and perhaps the mud flood was caused from a pole shift or from an exotic weapon owned by the New World Order parasites. Could this new awakening or apocalypse, which in Greek means the unveiling. We shall be given the truth and this free energy technology once again. It shall happen rapidly with the light and dark forces battling for the final outcome. Could we soon witness a plasma dimensional change? We are now giving pieces of the puzzle, obvious symbols, messages in media, movies, everywhere. I think we shall know more as time goes narrowing to the point of who shall win this spiritual battle this time. In most areas of life, the old world was at least 100 times better than what has evolved exponentially and ambitiously over the last 100 years. By many miles, the main reasons were due to human consciousness connections to the whole universe, including to other human beings, through God and spirituality. The new world is riddled with disorders, including physical, mental, and environmental, because too many have lost, most by choice, their ability to communicate and connect, and have a relationship with the Creator, Truth, and Light, and instead choose to follow and support evil forces for their agendas of perpetual profit, control, and power. These types actually think they are some sort of good themselves, try to act the part, and their religion is a dark cult using weaponized science and technology throughout societies and systems. Systems they have actually mostly hijacked from the previous founders, builders, teachers, etc., in order to win at all costs. However, truth is still available. You just have to know where to seek it, how to connect to it, and make a continuous effort to align with it. It is not coming from the majority of these modern mentally disordered powers that be, and only in quote-unquote selected bits and pieces, i.e. partial truths, half-lies, or deceptions from centralized organizations, including media, academia, sciences, medical and pharma, government sources, or from those with agendas, especially hidden agendas, and those using covert methods to target 
and are trying to control others. It is not a matter of if our history has been rewritten. We know that it has. But who did it and why? The parasite that infects all peoples and nations destroys history. We are left with no real past. A fake one, perhaps. Without a real past, we have an uncertain future at best. Tonight, we uncover not only what has been hidden, but stolen in plain sight. Our history. The what, the who, what happened, and how. Negative, parasitic, and opportunistic beings invented a new timeline based on the existing physical infrastructure and original history. Get ready for Tartaria, the Moors, the Old World Order, and the Mod Flood Reset. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, Want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback? Just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Fabregas. And to tell us more, tonight's special guest is Michelle Gibson, who was raised outside of Washington, D.C. She has a bachelor's degree in social work and psychology from the University of Maryland. She has lived in many different places and traveled extensively. Michelle firmly believes there will be no mysteries in history if we have been told the true history. She has been fascinated by megaliths most of her life, and her journey has led her to uncovering the key to the truth. She found a star tetrahedron on the North American continent by connecting the dots of major cities and extended the lines out. Then she wrote down the cities that line up primarily in circular fashion and got an amazing tour of the world of places she had never heard of with remarkable similarities across countries. This whole process and other pieces of the puzzle that fell into place brought up information that needs to be brought back into the collective awareness. She provides compelling evidence to support this. Her website is piercingtheveilofillusion.com, which is also linked at ours. Michelle Gibson joins us directly from Sedona, Arizona. Hello, Michelle, and welcome to Veritas. Thank you, Mel. I'm really happy to be here. My pleasure. And Michelle, as I was telling you offline, we are, just for the record, we're starting this interview earlier than I expected because I think, and with your permission, we're probably going to take a little bit longer than I thought. This information, folks, you have to listen to. It's going to open doors. It's going to resonate with you as it did with me, I hope. Let's begin with your story. I read a bit of your bio, but tell me about you, where you grew up, and what led you to this journey of inquiry. Okay, thank you. I'm 56. I was born in July of 1963 in Bethesda, Maryland, and I grew up in Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, first in Gaithersburg and then in Rockville, um, which is where I spent my life until I was basically 19, and that's when I joined the Army in 1982. 
I started to become aware of anomalies in the environment around me from a very young age. My dad played softball for the church that we went to, and I would wasn't interested in watching him practice, so I would go down the hill into the forest and play around these really big stones that I found down there. Didn't think anything of it until I started doing the research that I'm sharing now, and I looked up Twinbrook, which is the part of Rockville where this was located, and it's adjacent to Rock Creek in the Washington, D.C. area. When you start looking up pictures of Rock Creek, you see big stones in the water and around it. And as part of my journey in uncovering this information, there are certain keywords or code words, if you will, that are telling us something. So anything that has rock or stone in it, essentially, you can get information from that. And we're living in on top of what was an incredibly advanced, prolific, beautiful civilization. Um, and what we're going to be talking about tonight is how I arrived at this conclusion. And I've been studying this intensively for about three years, three or four years now. Um, I've been fascinated with huge megalithic structures for a long time. When I was a teenager, I enjoyed watching Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack, Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, and Leonard Nimoy's In Search Of. So even when I was a teenager, I was I couldn't get enough of all of this alternative information. Then in the early 1980s, when I was in the Army stationed in Germany, I purchased an archaeology encyclopedia in the early 1980s that had pictures of places like Machu Picchu in Peru and Mohindo. Mohenjo Daro in Pakistan in the Indus River Valley. And it talked about multi ton blocks of stone fitting together perfectly without mortar. And this was the beginning of a deeper interest in the subject. And I'm thinking that was where I first learned of this because this isn't any type of information you can just go in and get, especially in the 80s. I mean, you know, it wasn't really talked about. After I got out of the Army in 1986, where I met my future husband, I attended college in Maryland, like Mel said, where I was born and raised, got my bachelor's degree in social work and psychology. I got married a week later and moved to New Mexico. My husband was a retired Army sergeant, almost 20 years older than me, and I lived there from 1989 to 1994, in Fairbanks, Alaska from 1994 to 1999 and Buffalo, Wyoming from 1999 until his death in 2001, from what I now know to have been complex health problems caused by his exposure to Agent Orange in Vietnam, but we didn't know that at the time. Part of me sharing this particular background is an introduction to me not having lived a conventional life as an adult, and I have not been plugged into the Matrix for a very long time. Maybe in childhood and teenage years when I actually watched television, but even then I was asking questions and not tied into a belief system. To make a long story short, I ended back up in Fairbanks, Alaska in 2006, and that's when I really started to wake up. I was introduced to Drunvalo Mikhelzadek's work in about 2007. He brought sacred geometry back into the collective awareness, and I participated in a Flower of Life workshop around 2008. Drunvalo's video in 2010 called Birth of the New Humanity gave me my first clue that a planetary grid like this even existed. He talked about a planetary grid system involving over 80,000 sites around the world that had been built under 
those directions starting after the fall of Atlantis to help with humanity's ascension since humanity had already reached a high level of consciousness before the fall. He said it was the result of one mind and one plan. He also introduced the work of Karl Monk, who many of you may be familiar with, where he brought up his book, The Code, in which Karl deciphered a shared mathematical code related to the pyramids of Giza and the dimensions of the architecture of sacred sites all over the planet, one which encodes longitude and latitude of each that cross-reference other sites. He shows that this pyramid code is clearly sophisticated and intentional and perfectly aligned over long distances. At the time, I thought, wow, that sounds great, but who could have built it? And Drunvalo didn't really answer that question in the video, but he planted a seed in my consciousness. And then around 2010, I discovered Dowser and researcher Hugh Newman and his megalithmania conferences. I watched a lot of videos, and they featured brilliant earth energy and earth mystery researchers and gave them a platform to share their findings, always asking the question, what were the ancients up to? So I'm absorbing all of this information and reading books by Graham Hancock, Barbara Han Hanclow, and many other researchers delving into non-traditional lines of research and providing compelling evidence for a highly advanced lost global civilization that was geometrically aligned with itself, the planet, and the stars. And I really wanted to know who, what, where, when, and how this monumental architecture came to be. So after all the information that came my way from these sources and more, I said, bring it to the universe because I really wanted to know. And I received these answers in a co-creative participatory process and I happened to be living in a part of the country that was intrinsically connected to what I was receiving. I was well prepared when the information came pouring in. Now, I have a lot more I can say at this point, but is there anything I've said so far that you would like to ask about? No, that was exactly what I wanted. I wanted you to just uh, give us a profile of who you are and what just made you such a, an inquisitive mind, because we have a lot of things in common. I mean, we grew up a certain way. And then we started just understanding that the, this belief system is not going to answer the questions. And you started just connecting dots. And, and now we just have eyes to see. And we just continue opening doors. And recently, just to let the audience know, the last year, I would say, a lot of people have been contacting me saying, Mel, look at these two concepts, Tartaria and the mud flood. And I've been looking for somebody to discuss these. And then a few weeks ago, somebody said, you need to talk to Michelle Gibson, look at her website. Not only do you discuss Tartaria and the mud flood, but you discuss many others. And I've been suspecting for a very long time that in the not too distant past, contrary to what we've been told, our civilization on this plane we call Earth was connected all over the world, a grid, as you say, similar language, if not the same, a similar architecture. But something came along and destroyed it. There was a, an information gap in the middle on purpose so that we could forget who we really are. Why don't we begin with those concepts first? That sounds good. Okay. I have really, really gathered a lot of information about this. My research comes from the data points that I found when I found the North American star tetrahedron and extended the line out. And the education I had from the Earth Energy researchers was that there were great circle alignments. And I believe that the North American, what I call the North American star tetrahedron is like the terminus or the, the key 
of this worldwide grid. And it centered on North America with the, um, the top of the upper triangle or tetrahedron being in Edmonton and the bottom being in um, Merida. So if you think of a Star of David shape, that's what I'm talking about. The top is in Edmonton. The bottom is in Merida, Mexico. I knew enough about what information had been gathered about the ancients that if I extended the lines, I was going to get information back. Now, I don't have a complex program to do this. I, I basically started with a flat map, which is how I found it, <laughs> when I noticed lines that were cities that were lining up in lines. Are you talking and about be- a, a flat earth map? I'm talking about a flat map. Okay. Not necessarily a flat earth, but a flat map. Because that fits very well, too. I've seen both, by the way. Mm-hmm. And I didn't start out from a flat earth or globe perspective. I used a, a flat map and a globe to get my data points. But I'm not doing this work to prove one way or the other. And I've got flat earth researchers on, you know, that make comments. And um, I'm open. <laughs> I'm very, very open to whatever this existence is. I All I know is I got real information back when I, after I found the initial alignments and extended the lines out, I had to switch to a globe. Um, I'm not a mathematician. I I couldn't figure out how to see the other side of the line, so I had to switch to a globe. And then I wrote places down that were lining up either in a linear fashion or in a circle. And we can get into it as we go for, further, but I believe that civilization was laid out as a flower of life. Um, of which all figures of sacred geometry are found, and this civilization was was built along those lines. When you that say it was, that it started as a flower of life, do you mean mm-hmm. it starts from a certain a point? I mean, let's. I haven't even watched the movies, the Lord, or, or read the books, Lord of the Rings. But some people say that it starts from a center. Let's call it Eden, if you mm-hmm. want to, or North Pole, and it just ripples like a pebble being thrown in a lake, and it goes like that. Is that what you're referring to? I'm referring to what Drumvelo describes as the creation pattern of the universe. So all life starts out in this pattern of circles. Like a Fibonacci sequence. That's part of it. The Fibonacci sequence is part of it. The golden ratio is part of it. Um, when when a, an egg is, is – um, anyway, when we're conceived, um, our cells start forming in a, a – flower of life pattern a certain in a certain way. So it's like a universal mechanism for creation. And it's a, it's a, it's a simple and yet complex pattern of interlocking circles. Uh, that's the best way I can describe it. That's fine. And obviously you and I have been exposed to a lot of material. Recently I was exposed to the work of somebody who used to work for the government, a, a book that was banned by the CIA where he talks mm-hmm. about that we are the sixth civilization here, and we had five different cataclysms in the past. This cataclysm that we're going to be discussing tonight, is this cataclysm natural, or was it perpetrated by an advanced nefarious civilization? I believe the latter. I believe it was absolutely deliberately caused in order to take control of humanity and the planetary grid system. And I didn't start out with that perspective whatsoever. I just I just had these uh, data points of these cities and places that lined up. And when I started looking at uh, drone videos and pictures, and I'm thinking, holy cow, everything looks the same everywhere. 
And so I've, I've like a walking filing cabinet of all of these places around the world where I can show you snaky S-shaped rivers that look the same and rivers systems that are called natural but are actually canals everywhere. They're canals, but we're taught they're rivers because that's how this has been hidden from us. And you know, you say that canals, right? And mm-hmm. you talk about Louisiana and the Washito uh, Empire. And not too long ago, a few months ago, or about a year ago, I had a gentleman who discussed these canals. And so many people who are close-minded ridiculed him for saying that. And he provided satellite imagery and a lot of different pictures showing that they were just man-made lines. And people were saying, no, no, that's just natural. So I'm so glad that more people are opening their eyes to what is there in front of our eyes. Right. The other aspect to that is... Even where there are acknowledged canals, we're told that they were built in the late 1700s, early 1800s. Right. Based on the history we've actually been taught, how on earth were they building these canals, which had big megalithic type stones and, you know, sophisticated engineering over long distances. And then we're told the railroads, and I believe the original civilization that I'm looking at built the railroads and the subways and the streetcar lines, uh, that there were competitions between building the canals and building the railroads. And then the railroads made the canals obsolete because they were so much faster and efficient. Okay. So you have like the Baltimore and Ohio canal being built at the same time as the, um, or it's the CNO at be, being built at the same time as the Baltimore and Ohio railroad built at the same time. And then all of a sudden the canal is obsolete after you've spent all that money and time and effort in, into building this, and then you're not going to use it anymore. <laughs> I mean, but this is what we're told to explain the existence of these massive engineering projects during a time that we're told was low technology. Now we didn't have any money back then to, to just create such uh, accomplishments. Right. And they're building railroad systems through these remote areas. They don't know the terrain. They're building it as they go. And and then in the case of one in Canada, it's like, um, and then they'd never finished it. That kind of thing is what we're told. But again, it just, the, the stories don't match with what's actually there. And I believe it was all part of an integrated system and that all of these rail systems uh, were part of the planetary grid system and were part of a generator of free energy. We, we had free energy up until this cataclysm. Let's go dissect this step by step. And during the intro, I mentioned a few years. 1492, let's begin with that one, because I always find it very interesting that Spain was ruled, well, most of Spain was ruled by the Moors for 700 years. And it was that specific year, 1492, the fall of Granada, and then the kingdom of, of Castile, Aragon, and so on, took over again. And that is the, the same year that Christopher Columbus, who, by the way, folks, according to the research I've gathered, and a professor from the University of Arizona told me this in 1997. At a social gathering, she took me on the side, and she said, I'm a professor of history, and I'm not allowed to say this in my class, but you've been asking me questions. I will tell you that Christopher Columbus was a Sephardic Jew, He was not Italian from Genoa. He was a very experienced person, a very smart guy, and he received a lot of maps. And she told me that Columbus's voyage was motivated 
by a desire to find a safe haven for the Jews in light of their expulsion from Spain. And uh, coincidentally, or significantly, the day he set forth was the very day that Jews were, by law, given the choice of converting, leaving Spain, or being killed. That same day. Now, one last thing I want to say about this is that Columbus's voyage was not, as is commonly believed, funded by the deep pockets of Queen Isabella, but rather by two Jewish conversos and another prominent Jew, Louis de Santangel and Gabriel Sanchez, or Gabriel Sanchez, advanced, who advanced an interest free loan of 17,000 ducats from their own pockets to help pay for the voyage, as did Don Isaac Abrabanel, rabbi and Jewish statesman. And indeed, the first two letters Columbus sent back from his journey were not to Ferdinand and Isabella, and the king and the queen, but to Santangel and Sanchez, thanking them for their support and telling them what he had found. And it seems that history changed. Now, the discovery, I call it the rediscovery of America, is basically just giving the routes for Europe to the Americas. But there are people here before. Now, why is this? Let's begin with 1492, and then we'll jump to 1942. Okay. Uh, Let me give you how I arrived at my belief that a 3D time loop was created between the years 1492 and 1942 with 1717 at the midpoint year. I have a a blog post and video called An Explanation for What Happened to the Positive Timeline of Humanity and Associated Historical Anomalies. Uh, where, Where I got that point is I could see that everything around the world was the same when I was doing my research, the architecture, the beautiful ornate architecture. And I started mulling the idea that about this time loop, but I, I, I couldn't figure out a mechanism or anything like that. I just, it just came to me. And I also studied um, the earth's dragon lines. So the two great dragons of the earth, um, that crisscross and they meet at um, Lake Titicaca in Peru and in Bali in Indonesia. And through the course of my research, I came to believe that they they found a way to attach this timeline to the great dragon lines. And I go into depth in that uh, blog post that I mentioned about how I came to believe that. About the same time, a psychic friend was visiting me <laughs> And she said, oh, I see your guides. (laughs) They want me to tell you what your mulling is correct, which was that that time loop between 1492 and 1942. And I figured out the 1717 because I think there's like 450 years between 1492 and 1942. Which is half in between. Yeah, it's in between. And when I started looking up the year 1717, there was so much anomalous stuff going on. It was crazy. And then my friend said... They also want me to tell you something else. And she got an image of Ireland in, 19, in 1742, and Ireland was green. And she, before that, she saw it was like white and, and frozen. So I looked up Ireland in 1742, and the only two things that I found was the Great Frost of Ireland, which took place over, I want to say it was 21 months of extremely cold weather where half a million people were killed. You know, never heard of it before, but it is in the historical record. 
So that was between 1740 and 1741. And in 1742 was the premiere of Handel's Messiah in Dublin, like nothing had happened. Just weird stuff. (laughs) So I also had read Peter Moon's work. I don't know if you're familiar with Peter. Yes, we had him on the show a few weeks ago about the Montauk Project. Yeah, so he does a lot of research on the Montauk Project and the Philadelphia Experiment. He also talks a lot about the Moors. And the, the Philadelphia Experiment was in 1942. So I have postulated that the Philadelphia Experiment could have been involved in this, this hi, you know, this hijack of the timeline, whatever they did. Now, I don't know, but I've put together some information that needs to be at least be looked at uh, because in 1717, um, let me look here, things that were happening in 1717, let me tell you this, okay. Um, king George I of the German House of Hanover became king of Great Britain and Ireland in 1714. So the British bloodline changed to German now. Yeah. Uh, this marked the end of the rule of the House of Stuart, which originated in Scotland. And you can find pictures of King James the first of England, or yeah, first of England and sixth of Scotland, as as a Moor. It's out there. <laughs> as a Moor, and by the as way, just Moore. just to clarify, it's out there, and his son. Just to clarify, because <laughs> you know we may be confused with what I was telling you before we started. The right. Moors that I was referring to, the Moors of Northern Africa, the ones who took over Spain. Are they the same Moors that you're referring to that were here in North America already? Yeah, I believe it was all part of the same, all part of the same. I, I, the Moors, I believe the word Moor is actually M-U-U-R, Moor, Moor. Like Lemuria, originating from Lemuria? Correct. The ancient ones. The Washita Moors are also known as the ancient ones. Um, I also believe we're talking about the same people who are, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's part of the template that got hijacked when the new history was created. So we're talking about what I think is um, society was, was lined up in, in harmony and balance. And the say like the 12 tribes were worldwide and they existed in a certain configuration, like maybe the Zodiac. Mm. And there's information out there to support that. I'm not just pulling that out of thin air. Um, there's people around the world that identify as lost tribes in the South Pacific, in Pakistan, in India, in uh, you look at Hawaii, uh, Madagascar. Um, so that's part of what I'm what that's part of what I'm seeing also is that that. I see a, a, a very beautiful, harmonious civilization emerging, and all of that's been smashed <laughs> and fragmented, and the new history was, was bits and pieces of what was here originally. So, Michelle, when we think of 1851, well, actually, I, let, me just, let me just rewind for a moment. When we think of ancient cultures and our ancestors, our original ancestors, if you want to call them that way, people think of thousands of years in the past— but 1851 seems to be a very close date. I mean, in the if you look at time, that's just a, a, a droplet of nothing, right? Just right. a couple of hundred years ago. When we think of Tartaria and the mud flood 
you know, I, you know, a lot of people send me pictures all the time of what looked to be wireless electricity in cities and mm-hmm. incredible buildings. We think of the ancient ones, the ones that built the Great Wall of China, which we'll discuss in a moment here, because it could not, it probably was not the Chinese, because Tartaria was an empire, and the doors were on the side of Tartaria, not the Chinese. And the Chinese keep covering these pyramids over there, mm-hmm. paying the farmers to, to, to farm on top of them, so people don't understand that in the past, there was a race of people, red-headed, blue eyes, and they don't want the narrative to say, wait, you were not here before us. Mm-hmm. There were other people here before you. Same thing with Genghis Khan. It's portrayed as Asian-looking, when in fact, a lot of the information I'm getting is that he was redheaded, blue eyes as well. And I also wonder about the the larger-than-life historical figures like Genghis Khan and Alexander the Great and um, Bobor, who was from Uzbekistan, modern-day Uzbekistan, who is said to have founded the Mughal Empire. I I kind of think of them as maybe even fictitious devices where in some parts of the world they idolize the memory of these people as for their greatness. And I can't tell you how many fortresses I found in Central Asia that was said to have been built during the time of Alexander the Great. And I just I just really don't buy that. But let me let me tie in what I was talking about to the year 1851. Um, I'm going to go back to 1717 for a moment and go through this timeline and I'll try to make it quicker and not side my, sidetrack myself. 1717 was the year that the premier Grand Lodge of England was founded in London on June 24, 1717. And it was the first free Masonic Grand Lodge that was in the exact midpoint year between 1492 and 1942. Um, in, in 1744, Mayor Rothschild was born in Frankfurt, Germany. So that was right after the the great frost of Ireland. Um, and he established his banking business there in the 1760s, which became the start of the international banking family. On February 6, 1748, Adam Weishaupt was born in Ingolstadt, Bavaria, Germany. He went to a Jesuit school at the age of seven, founded the Bavarian Order of the Illuminati on May 1st of 1776, and was initiated into Freemasonry in 1777. So my work and research is leading me down the path of uncovering how the new historical narrative was created and implemented and the process of how the original history was deconstructed and reconstructed into a new narrative. So if my date of 1740 to 1741 for the main causal event of the mud flood is correct, and the new reset timeline officially started in the mid-1850s, there would have been a little over 100 years to set the stage for the new world, so to speak, and dig out enough infrastructure to restart civilization. Essentially, we just wipe the hard drive clean, and we have 100 years to start putting new code into the hard drive, proverbially. That's, that's what I think. And I didn't know about the mud flood when I started to um, blog and then make videos for my blog posts. Um, that information came to me about... I want to say eight months after I started when a mutual subscriber connected me with somebody in the mud flood community. And when I saw that research, I'm thinking we're looking at the same buildings. I'm the only one that I know of. When um, do you think that the mud flood happened? I personally think because of how I was guided to the information that the, the great frost of Ireland of 1740, 1741 was a causal factor. Now, you know, some people believe, you know, talk about like the earthquake, 
1812, the New Madrid earthquake, uh, space weather. I mean, there could have been a number of contributing factors, but I 100% believe that this was deliberately caused. And there's enough underground infrastructure where so-called bloodline families or contract families or whoever was behind this could have stayed while the surface was being cleared out. And also pockets of humanity could have lived as well. What See, I'm trying to understand how the mud flood happened. And I'm thinking, if the if you believe in the globe and the rotation or something along those lines, if the earth stops, then that would mean that certain parts of earth would be scorched, like the Sahara Desert. Other parts would be frozen. And the waters would continue and take all that flood with the most powerful force in nature. And that's if you believe the globe. If it's the other way, then we're talking about the sea currents would have somehow been changed dramatically to build all that mud into the areas where buildings were there before. And that's why we see all these buildings that when you just dig a few feet and you see structures, you know, multi-story buildings under the mud. Right. Something happened. And again, I'm not arguing at this point for globe or flat earth. I've, I've seen evidence for both, but, but something happened. And, um, and I believe that there were beings that were shovel ready to dig it out as soon as they could. And they, uh, that's how the, the, let's call them the 1%. I mean, it's a word that people can relate to, you know, certain families got so powerful and so wealthy, um, from the get go. It was structured so that they could just suck up the wealth of humanity and the legacy of humanity and just claim it for themselves and trick us into worshiping them, you know, um, without us being the wiser. You're saying that during those 100 years, can we call it, we went back to almost sticks and stones. There were a few people that knew what they were doing or who caused it. Mm -hmm. And they came out of their underground caves, if you want to call it that way, and basically took over the assets of the entire world, and those are the people who currently subjugate the planet, call it the blood, the blue bloodlines or the royal bloodlines, if you want to call them that way? Yeah. Or, you know, I, mean, th I think we're talking about the Catholic Church uh, at the upper levels. <laughs> upper levels. <laughs> um, I think we're talking about um, royal families. I think we're talking about secret societies, Freemasonry, um, and others. They're the ones that know. You know, there's just a lot of things going on in the world today that we know of. Um, I'm personally optimistic at this point um, that we're going to see some major changes and I hopefully, hopefully very soon. But I think, I think humanity's going to be okay. And, um, but I think that's because the system is being dismantled and that people are going to be accountable for what has taken place. And I'm talking major crimes against humanity. That is probably, a lot of people say, Mel, what is your biggest wish? And that would be the biggest wish, to uncover mm -hmm. the information that has been hidden or stolen from us so that we know where, if we don't know where we came from or if we don't know our past, then we have no future because we'd be mm -hmm. building all these civilizations for thousands of years. And if they were able to accomplish all the things that we cannot replicate today, And all the secrets are stored, let's just say, in the catacombs of the Vatican or libraries around the world that are not for you and I and our listeners. But if all this information came out and the unveiling 
or piercing the veil or the veil of illusion, as you call it, mm-hmm. paint a picture. If tomorrow, if somebody were to disclose our true history, paint a picture of this world would react. It's so much has been kept from us. Um, <laughs> money, technology, our true history. Um, some things that I've come to believe is that the original order of society was turned upside down. I believe we've been the subjects of a vast human and social engineering project, not for our best interests, but that of other beings. That the positive life-enhancing planetary grid system was reverse-engineered into a control system. Great exhibitions, expositions, and world fairs, starting in with the Crystal Palace Exhibition of 1851, were showcasing the technology and architectural wonders of the original civilization before being hidden away or forever destroyed. And 1851 was the same year that the prime meridian of the Earth was moved to the Royal Observatory in Greenwich. Before you talk about the Pyramid of Giza mm-hmm. being changed to the Greenwich, let's stay with the 1851, the, the, the exhibition, the World Exhibition. Mm-hmm. This is fascinating. That place was burnt down to the ground. Well, it, not only that, they moved it. It's this humongous... If you take, look a picture of yeah. the Crystal Palace, it is huge. It was... Three times the size of St. Paul Cathedral is what they tell us. And St. Paul's Cathedral looks like the Washington Capitol, the capital of Washington, D.C., the U.S. Capitol building. It looks just like it. Was that the new burning of the Library of Alexandria, in your opinion? <laughs> oh, goodness knows <laughs> what they've done with all the history um, besides secreting it underneath the Vatican. Um, but, but not anyway, a lot of people they, know about this event. I just learned it from you, from your research, and I've been thinking, you know, all these stuff that you're bringing out that I've kind of heard here and there, but this place, it burnt down, so all that information just ceased to exist. Is this a time when the powers that want to be decided enough, we cannot continue disclosing this information? I think they, I just think they wanted it gone. Uh, And I think it was, it was highly sophisticated. So they tell us they moved the Crystal Palace to this other place. As they said, it was in Hyde Park, and they moved it to another place in London. And then at some point in the future, it burned down. Um, and that happened to a lot of things uh, got burned down, destroyed, demolished. Um, so I think they – I see that particular exhibition in London in 1851 as the official kickoff of this new timeline. Uh, it's called the New World Order Timeline, where they exhibited all these things. It was said to have been built, like, right before the exhibition by a greenhouse builder, <laughs> Sir Joseph Paxton. And all of these people came, and it was wildly successful. And from the proceeds of it, they were able to build, like, the Natural History Museum and the the Victoria and Albert Museum. And I think there was one other. Okay, so a recurring theme with regards to world's fairs and expositions like this in the next hundred years or so is that it was all meant to be temporary. And then they, they took it down when they were done. And we're talking colossal architecture, massive, massive architecture. And again, if you, I've I've got some work that I've done on that, but if you even look up world fairs and expositions starting in 1851 and look it up yourself, it, the architecture is mind-blowing. I've been to one, 1984 in New Orleans, loved it. 
And I wish I could continue, but I believe they canceled all the World Expos now. I looked it up when I was doing the research for that particular blog post, and um, they've had some, I think there was one in Kazakhstan not too long ago. They've had some up until the present day, but I would say the first hundred years of expositions were almost like a bye-bye to this original technology. As a matter of fact, I was talking about the World's Fair in Philadelphia, and I want to say it was in 1876 or something, where there was a Corliss engine, steam engine that was showcased, that was powering the machinery hall. And I had three different views of it, and somebody commented that it looked like a Vimyana, which well, is Vimana. an Indian. Well, Vimana. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking they're claiming credit or giving credit to other people uh, about the architecture of these World's Fairs before they get rid of it. And, and like I said, there's very few uh, structures left standing from these first hundred years worth of World Fairs and Expositions. So what do you think they discussed in the, or what they included in that 1851 expo? In I think they had the technology of the original civilization there. So you think that the, the, the technology did not get lost as we're told? Correct. I mean, we're talking about a very deliberate, malevolent, hostile takeover of the planetary grid system and humanity. But look at the 19... The 10s or 20s, electric cars, electric motorcycles. And electric street cars. Yes. And then they take it out. The bus, they get motorized vehicles, and all of a sudden they're taking out the street cars. The tire industry. The tire industry, the car industry, yes. And they were able to control our everything when they took out the the, the affordable electrical streetcar transportation systems that were worldwide, and I'm talking about in residential neighborhoods as well, and replaced it with vehicles that you have to buy gas for. Standard oil was like one of the richest, the richest (laughs) uh, corporations. (laughs) I mean, that's how they stuck the money up. Of course. (laughs) And you can look at any industry, automobile, um, gasoline, Beer. (laughs) They owned everything. They owned, it was like vertical integration. They owned every aspect of that company and they sucked the money up. That's how they got so wealthy. But that happens pretty much in every industry. When you had the, before electricity, I forgot how you call it, the people who used to light the poles every night, they were, pardon? Lamp lighters, I think. Exactly. Lamp lighters. They were all in strike saying, no, this is going to be dangerous. This is going to be, you know, it's going to kill a lot of people when electricity came about. Then you had the electric cars, street cars. Then what? We get the the cars and the horse, people that, you know, race horses were totally against it. They lobbied in Washington saying, no, that's going to be, that's going to cause a lot of deaths. And the car came along. And then the electric, the street cars, the tire companies lobbied against them. And guess what? Now we have one in San Francisco, one in New Orleans, one in every few places. But this is what happens. They just hide the reason why they were there before. And another interesting point of information to go along with that, Mel, is that I can't tell you how many pictures I've encountered of horses pulling streetcars. So what they're telling us is that horses pulled streetcars until electricity came along. Yeah. 
And the conclusion I've come to is they were had to find some way to use them until they could get get the electrical system restarted. <laughs> what about these pictures that show over 100 years ago in cities, I presume it's what used to be Tartaria or the somewhere before the Soviet Union. I'm talking mm -hmm. before the Bolsheviks came along. And right. you see these posts that almost look like wireless electricity being transferred. That is nowhere in the history books. Exactly. You see pictures of large cities like Paris in France and St. Petersburg in Russia, empty. <laughs> like nobody there. Right. Or very few people there with big, humongous architecture and nobody there. Um, and I know a lot of other mudflood researchers go into reset cities and, you know, really dig into that more than I do. I'm, I'm just following the alignments and sharing my findings. Um, I'm just did a, a blog post and video where I'm looking at um, Van Turkey and then Cappadocia and um, found some really interesting things. And this is how I, I figured, you know, finding out how a lot of things were done. And one thing I want to mention is that there are at least 40 underground cities in Cappadocia that were told. There's now, six what is Cappadocia? It's a region in Turkey, in central Turkey, um, which used to be called Anatolia, where there's incredible underground cities that are in, in rock. And then there's above ground cities that are, you know, it's like they're carved straight out of rock. Um, an unusual, let's call them rock formations. Um, I think there was a whole lot more man-made influence there than, than what we're told. But that's so ingrained into our thinking that we can't even imagine it being intentionally created by humans. Oh, Cappadocia yeah, in Cap Turkey. Okay. So yeah. the question is, because I've heard about, I've even seen some of the images of underground caves, but they're right. obviously man-made. And one of them, I believe they could fit 13 or 18,000 people. Yeah, I and was if, reading where, where Darren Kuyu in one of the underground cities that's open to the public could yes. fit 20,000 people, their livestock and their food supplies. And it's it's the deepest underground city. So obviously, whoever built them knew that something may happen in the future, a cataclysm, and they did that to protect their population. It's possible, or it's just possible that when you talk about as above, so below. Right. I mean, we could be just be talking about different levels of habitation or that that could have been a much older city and there's so much in Cappadocia you have Darien Kuyu right there Kayakapi in my opinion were built before the Ottoman Empire settled in that area of the world right and I and I'm still thinking there was a continuous civilization that the Ottomans were part of as well so uh, talking about the different empires the Washita Empire was in North America the and they're they're acknowledged by the UN to be the oldest indigenous civilization on earth, and yet we've never heard of them. And then we have um, Barbaria was called the northern coast of Africa, and then Tartaria would have been Asia. Um, you know, looking at Japan, we're looking at the Mughal Empire. Um, what I see is empires within empire. So I see the all of it is under the umbrella of the Moorish Empire. And I don't see this society as having been warlike, like we're taught. Because I can't imagine how 
such a beautiful society could have been fighting each other. Everything was integrated. And then it's, it's, I go into detail on my website. Um, I've got a lot of information. I'm not just, you know, again, I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. <laughs> I've been studying it for a while. And as I follow alignments, I, I never am quite sure what I'm going to see when I look in a certain place, but I know what to look for. And I'm always, I always find it, but I find it in the architecture. I find it in the parks. Um, I find it in the, I'll say river system, but let's say canal system, because I think that's what we're really talking about. Um, so I just use the written word to show me where to look. And, and then once I start, you know, peeling back the, the veil and the cover, I can, I can, I can see the same infrastructure that I see in on other continents and other parts of the world. So um, that's part of my process. Um, we've been completely immersed by education and entertainment in a false historical narrative, kind of, you know, bringing that back around. Oh, there's something else I want to say about that part of the world, but hold on. Um, so I was looking at the Lake Van area in Turkey, and that used to be part of Armenia. Now, Armenia it must be something very, very, very special about Armenia. <laughs> and I, I would love to Ask know the what genocided Armenians. <laughs> I would love to know what Armenia represents. The Sumerians called it their homeland. The Great Flood was supposed to have come from the highlands of Armenia. And that's in the Epic of Gilgamesh. And I believe that's also uh, Mount Ararat, where Noah's Ark landed. Exactly. Is in Armenia. There's something very special about Armenia. And at the end of World War I, Turkey had um, allied itself with Germany. So Turkey got punished for its alliance. And the, or I should say the Ottoman Empire at that time. So there, a lot of their lands got taken. And new borders for Armenia were drawn. Because Lake Van, that whole area was part of Urartu and the historical uh, Armenia. So there was even a treaty in 1920 called the Treaty of Sebras. And in it, Armenia was supposed to get its land back. And Woodrow Wilson was the one that was going to draw up the, the boundaries, which would have taken land back from the Ottoman Empire. At the time, the Turkish nationalist movement had gotten started under um, Ataturk's leadership. And they said, nope, not going to happen. They invaded Armenia in 1920, got the, most of the Armenian army um, disarmed, got their lands back. Same time, same year, the Soviet Red Army invaded Armenia. And it became part of the Soviet Union. This, but this is after the six hundred to six hundred thousand to one and a half million yeah. Armenians were genocided, killed between nineteen fifteen and nineteen twenty-two. Exactly. So there is something <laughs> about Armenia that is very special, and you know that information is long gone. It's it's in hidden away in different ways. But anyway, I just thought I'd bring that up because. Or there. So um, there's plenty of underground infrastructure, like, did you say Cappadocia? Yes. Um, I find underground places built out in major cities like Budapest. Um, I think it's everywhere, actually. <laughs> underground Atlanta, 
Um, I mean, there's plenty of underground infrastructure, a lot of subway tunnels that are not used. Um, you know, there's just so much. We're just like scratching the surface. Um, a few other things. I said we've been completely immersed by education and entertainment and a false historical narrative. The books that we read, movies that we watch. Um, you've got John Wayne movies. Well, John Wayne was a a 33rd degree or was a Shriner. I don't know if he was 32nd or 33rd degree. So he was a Freemason. Um, and other actors. I think anybody that goes or ascends to a certain position, whether it's Hollywood, whether it's NASA, whether it's government, they have to be bottom pay for, subverted or destroyed because they're the ones that are in control. They're the cultural editors. Mm -hmm. And then we've been kept asleep by addictions, by distractions and by consumerism. You know, again, a lot of wealth was generated by um, Anheuser-Busch and Jack Daniels. And um, we associate drinking with ball games and movies and, or um, with movies, you have junk food. Uh, <laughs> Bread and circus. Yeah. I mean, that's how they keep us from really seriously asking questions. They spoon feed us what they want us to see. And they've managed to hide all of this in plain sight for a long time. But thankfully, a lot of people are are um, waking up to what's really been going on. And, um, you know, people like yourself that are looking for different information other than what we've been told. And that's the problem. I mean, really, we're fortunate. I'm fortunate to be able to do this, to have some time to discuss all these things once a week. But most people don't have the time. They're involved with their work, their families, their eight hours, if you're lucky, to sleep, eight hours to work, and eight hours to quote-unquote play, which most people don't have that time. So hardly any time to go out there and find our truth. So we have people like you to bring this tough out. It's just a matter of choice. You either stay with what you've been indoctrinated all from day one when you went to school and you saw the big globe there and you got the history books to be told what you what they wanted you just become a good producer and taxpayer. That's basically what you're supposed to do. And those of us who step outside, I wonder if we are a species in extinction in the future. If they completely say, by the way, because of climate change, we need to completely eradicate all the physical books. We're going to just do digital books. Imagine what they could do to the fragment of truth that we still have at our disposal, Michelle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I personally believe that I, I came into this life to do this work. Um, even though I don't have formal training in what I'm doing, I, I think that's probably a benefit because I, I didn't have any real preconceived ideas before I started. For sure. Other than just, you know, a good education <laughs> in alternative subjects. And thankfully with the internet and, um, you know, other people's research coming out, I, I was able to get a good grounding in what I needed. Um, but the work that I'm actually doing and presenting is, is my original work, but i I benefited from other people, you know, telling me about these places, like, you know, the same things being in South America as in Turkey, the same kinds of structures. And, um, you know, a lot of people asking questions and it just, it, it just gave me a good education in a subject that's pretty obscure. Um, 
and having a real interest in wanting to know. And I think my receptiveness to this information um, has just allowed it to flow. Um, and I, like I said before, I, I do have a ton of information on on my website and my YouTube channel um, that just, it's, it's so easy for me to do this. It looks like it would be hard, but it's not. I've got the will to do it. You know, some people say, I'm glad you're doing it. You don't have to. And it's like, yes, I do have to. <laughs> I have to do this. I, I never blogged before 2018 and I never made videos. And it was like, okay, I was given this information for a reason. So I'm getting it out to the best of my ability. And being in Sedona, do you think that's something that has something to do with it? The synchronicity since I moved here in 2017 have been off the charts. So I, I do think living here has helped that process. And I, I made some friends when I first moved here that were interested and um, gave me a platform among my group of friends to present this information to them. And that was the seed for everything that I've done since because I started to organize my thoughts about it. I already had the knowledge. I already had the, how in the heck am I going to get this out to people, what I see? And because once I started to see it, I could not see it. <laughs> and then when I, you can go outside your front door, I kid you not, and it's everywhere. And yeah. it doesn't matter where you live, literally. Well, folks, we have to take a one and only intermission. We just scratched the surface. I just wanted to get all this out, but I want to just dig deeper into every facet of what I've been discussing here because I want to talk about the Washita Empire in North America, the Tartarians in Asia. This seems to be the new one where everybody's saying, please discuss the Mount Flood, please discuss Tartaria, because that seems, and I have information here that was given to me regarding the Bolsheviks after they took power. And I'll read it to you when we can, well, I'll just say it right now and have more. After the Bolshevik Revolution, Tartarians were targeted for execution no wonder you can hardly find any information about this civilization in Russian publications. In the 1920s, most Tartar leaders and intellectuals who wanted independence were eliminated through execution or exile. This policy against the Tartars continued to some extent until the early 1950s. And I have a bunch more information that Michelle and I will share with you when we come back. Michelle, how can people learn more about your work? I have uh, my website is www.piercingtheveilofillusion.com. And then if you look up Michelle Gibson Moores, M O O R S, on YouTube, my YouTube channel pops right up. Well, folks, don't go anywhere. Fascinating talk with Michelle Gibson. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. See you in the member section. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest, and all of our material, proceed to the member section, or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting, Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS. CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe, 
to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.